0: me please to the book of Nehemiah. Those of us who have been through the 40 days of purpose remember Rick Warren's statement from his book that says, it's not about you. We have begun to understand that life does not circle around us, that it's all about God, really. And yet, and yet the amazing thing is that God has created you and me for a purpose. You are no accident. You are not cosmic junk that God has simply thrown out into existence. Your being in the world is not meaningless. It has purpose to it. And while it's not all about you, it does include you, for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has ordained beforehand that you should walk in them. Life is not about you, but God does have a reason for you to be in the world. God has formed you for a particular purpose. He has shaped you in a particular way. He wants to use you. And your task and mine is really, in one sense, very simple. Your task and mine is to simply be available to God. Now that's simple to say and it's simple to hear, but it's much more complex, isn't it, in carrying it out. We want to be usable to God, and yet there are so many things that often stand in our way. One of those things is what I want to talk about as we come to the book of Nehemiah. The title to this series in Nehemiah, and it won't be a long series, but the title of the series is this, Living on the Edge. Because you see, to be used by God, you must be willing to risk. You must be willing to risk camping out in your comfortable zone really places you off limits as far as God's intent is concerned. You cannot play it safe or hedge your bets with God and still be truly available to Him. You must be willing to risk yourself for God. Is that where you are today? I'm not suggesting that we should be risky in a foolish sense, but in a deliberate sense of abandonment, giving up the self-created security zones that we build carefully into our lives. I believe that God wants all of us to live on the edge. By that, I mean he wants us to live at the point where we are no longer in control. We put ourselves in a place where we risk it all if God doesn't come through like he promised he would. If you look at the Bible, you find that that's where the heroes of the Bible lived, on the edge. Abraham, for example, had a wonderful comfort zone in Ur of the Chaldees. But God said to Abraham, come out from there. I want to show you another place that I will give you. And based upon that promise from God, Abram stepped out. He began then to live on the edge. He left behind the security zone of Ur of the Chaldees and he risked it all based upon God's calling in his life. Consider Moses. Moses, who was raised in the the glamour and the power of the leadership of Egypt, and yet who willingly forsook all of that to live on the edge with God. Now, he got a little ahead of God, it seems, when he was 40 years of age, and so God sent him back for a graduate degree that took another 40 years. But eventually he stepped out in faith and he stood before Pharaoh, standing right on the edge, and he said, let the people of God go. Or think about, for example, Gideon, who was called by God to fight against this massive army of about 135,000 allied Amalekites and Midianites, a hundred and 35,000 of them. He was able to muster together an army of about 32,000 to fight against them. He's already out here on the the edge because he's called this army together. And then God says to him, too many Gideon, too many. You need to send home everybody who is afraid massive departure of soldiers. They went every direction leaving him with only a fraction of what he had to start with. And so God said to him sorry Gideon still too many so we're going to go down to the brook here and have a little test and the ones that lap up the water uh, out of their hands. Those are the ones that, that you want to be in your army. And so Gideon went down there with his calculator and he began to add all these, these numbers up and pushed total and it came up with 300. 300. 300 against this army of 135,000. God says now we've whittled it down to size. What was God doing? God was saying, I've got a a mission for you, Gideon. Here's what I want you to do, and I want to get the credit for it. I want you to do something, Gideon, that nobody can explain apart from me. And you know the story and how it unfolds, and how that as a result of those 300 and what God told them to do, which is so unusual, they didn't even have a sword in their hand. But as a result of it, 120,000 of the enemy were killed. A great victory for Gideon and for the Lord. And then I remember the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three Jewish fellows who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image and who because of that stepped out at the edge. They left behind the comfort zone where everybody else was kneeling and they remained standing in this large plain, very visible to all. They lived it right on the edge and because of that they were thrown into the fiery furnace and they didn't burn. They lived through it and the king recognized the greatness of their God. I mean you go down the list folks And time after time, you see that those that God blessed were people who deliberately chose to live on the edge. And I want to add another hero to that list. It is the man whose name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes from the name Nahum. There's another book in the Bible, another man, uh, represented by that name. But the name means comfort. When you add the suffix onto the name, I-A-H, Nehum you add on the name for God, Yah. So it means God comforts. Nehum Ayah, God comforts. God shows us in Nehemiah a man who was willing to live on the edge. Nehemiah leaves you and me an example of what this is all about to live this kind of a life. And what we want to notice today in chapter one is that living on the edge begins with your vision. You see, vision comes from God. God creates it in our lives. Vision is seeing the desired result, whatever it is, and then beginning to form a plan as to how to get there. That's what vision is. Living on the edge with your vision means dreaming of something that only God can do, and then stepping out in faith to work with Him, and we see Nehemiah doing that. I'd like for Steve St. Mary to come back up here for a moment. I didn't know Steve was going to be up here earlier until I got here this morning, and uh, because I've been gone this week, and it's good to be back with you, by the way. But uh, Steve, I'd just like to talk to you a moment, <clears throat> because you moved to this valley about 2000, wasn't it? And uh, you, you found Los Gatos Christian Church about 2001 or so, and you've yes. been very involved in our ministry here. And by the way, we thank you for your involvement in helping us in outreach and with the ESL program and so forth. And, yeah. and then you, had exper- you experienced what a lot of the folks here have experienced, the loss of a job in your field, which was, tell me again, biochemistry? <laughs> biotechnology. Biotechnology. Mm-hmm. And uh, that field sort of has dried up in some respect, for what you do in yes. that field, and so you went through a period of what—a couple of years without employment. It's been a little over three years. Three years, and what what did God do in your heart during that time?
1: <clears throat> well, we had a little conversation as I was looking for work, and
0: a little conversation with God. A little conversation, that, that, that's yes. Good. Just and have a little talk with Jesus.
1: Uh, yes, well. <laughs> yes, we did, and it, He impressed on my heart that I shouldn't leave the area, that I had been starting to work with the church and that I should continue that. So I began looking in the area, and the assumption I had was that I would uh, work here for a few years and then eventually go to Russia because I had been thinking about that for a number of years. I first visited in '95, but God had been laying on my heart to do something with Russia since the 1970s.
0: So this is a long-time dream, really, yes. that you've had. And eventually you planned to go. Yes. But now here you are, unemployed, thinking that you're going to find a job in your area and continue to work toward that goal. And God began to show you that it was sooner than, rather than later.
1: That's what he did, it. all right, yes. <laughs>
0: and, and, and so how did the ESL thing come together? What, what happened there?
1: Well, it happened right like a month after I lost my job that... Uh, the church wanted to begin an ESL program. And so I had time available, and it was an interest I had. I'd actually taught English or language arts uh, for a number of years, but usually not to internationals. And so I was really intrigued by the idea. There was a good team, and I said, yeah, I'll be involved. And since I had a lot of time, I got nominated to sort of lead it, <laughs> spearhead it. <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> Worked well that way. <laughs>
0: And so as you got ESL experience, God began to formulate this vision for Russia in a particular direction, didn't he?
1: Exactly, I had my idea. It was to work and prepare some things and then learn the language (laughs) and then finally go. Well, God said, "Well, wait a minute, I've been equipping you with this fine ability. Go get a degree that says you're official at teaching it and I'll make arrangements to get you over there. And he kept his end of the bargain i'll be going this wednesday
0: (laughs) all right we praise the lord for that steve do you feel like you're you're stepping out over the edge a bit here Uh, well (laughs) yes (laughs) i know the answer to that that's why i asked
1: yeah it became obvious to me uh, about the fourth day i was in the country looking for jobs that without the language it was going to be difficult to survive there doing the things i wanted to do which is meet russians and get involved in their lives and uh... Even shopping—it's <laughs> really, really helpful to know the language. So I'll be going there, you know, somewhat crippled from the standpoint I won't be able to communicate as effectively as one normally would like to. Um,
0: but you can read McDonald's, I can so read you, can, McDonald's. you can find a restaurant at least. <laughs>
1: yeah, the stop signs all say stop.
0: Oh, do they? In Russian, but they say stop. Okay. Well, Steve, I, I'm, what I'm seeing in your life is what we see in Nehemiah and this morning thanks very much for sharing a little bit of your journey and I'm glad we had prayer for you today as you head off as a, a tentmaker missionary really but uh, what we see and in, in happen in Steve's life is similar to what happened in Nehemiah's life you see there's a process to vision it doesn't just happen all at once normally there's a dream that that generates in the heart It it comes because one makes himself available to God. And then there's a period of listening and waiting and praying. And after this process has been fulfilled, God then makes the vision clear. Now I want you to notice with me what happened in Nehemiah's case. And as a result of watching him and walking along with him in his experience, my prayer is that you and I, will be willing, like him, to step to the edge in our lives. That we will be willing to move out of the safety margins that we build in to protect ourselves. Because, you see, it's only when we're willing to do that that God can really use us. Now, in Nehemiah's case, this process of the vision begins with Nehemiah seeing the need. That's true with you and me too. You see the need. That's the first step in the process. Vision doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think some folks believe that a vision happens when you get down on your knees and you pray for a vision and God zap zaps you in your imagination and your mind and suddenly you have this vision. But that isn't normally how it works. Nehemiah saw the situation in Jerusalem. Let's read about it. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, probably one of his blood brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile And are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now we need to have a little background in history here. The people of God, the nation of Judah, had forsaken the Lord, and therefore He had sent them into bondage to Babylon. Through Jeremiah the prophet, He said, "This bondage." is going to last for 70 years. That 70-year period began with the Babylonian assault on Jerusalem in 605 or 606 BC. Now Jerusalem was not destroyed at that time, but the the capital was conquered and Nebuchadnezzar, the king, took away some captives and he put the, the nation under tribute or taxation to himself. And so the clock on the 70 years began to tick at that point. Tens of of thousands of people over several years were displaced to Babylon. A number of years later, in 537-538 B.C., Cyrus, who had founded the nation of Persia, conquered Babylon took over its territory, assumed the position of the ruler of that vast region that today we call Iraq, Iran, and so forth, parts of Turkey. Cyrus was the mighty king of this whole area after he defeated Babylon. And because he wanted to ingratiate some of the captive peoples to himself, he released a number of them, including the Jews. And of course, that's what the Bible focuses on. And so, in these years, 537, 538, Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return to their homeland. Now, if you do the math, you see that that's about a 70 year period of time. If you want to read his decree, you can read it in Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. He decreed that the Jews who wished could return to their land. And the leader of them was to be a man by the name of shesh Bazar, which was his Babylonian name. He was apparently an elderly man. He, along with a younger leader uh, by the name of Zerubbabel, and a man who was acting as the, the priest of the Jewish people, a religious leader by the name of Jeshua or Joshua, led a number of people to go back from Babylon to the city of Jerusalem. They were given the authority there to begin to rebuild their temple. These first returning exiles laid the foundation for the temple building in Jerusalem. Remember, it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar some 70, not 70, but less than that, some 58 years or so, 56 years before this. It had been destroyed. And so they came back and they began to lay the foundation in 536. There was some opposition to their work by the enemies of the Jews. And so it stopped for a period of time and then it restarted. Another foundation was apparently laid because some years had passed. And finally the temple, a reduced temple, not as glorious, but at least a temple building was dedicated in March of 516 B.C. Now that dates about 70 years after it had been destroyed in 586. So there's several 70s here. Depends upon which 70 you want to attach yourself to to see which one Jeremiah may have been speaking about by the Spirit of God. But the interesting thing about this is that while the temple was reconstructed in 516, the the city itself the walls of the city, the gates of the city, were not rebuilt or restored. Many years pass. Interestingly, about 70 of them. And in late November or early December of 446 B.C., Nehemiah receives the information that we have just read about in the first chapter of this book. Now, what did Nehemiah see as he heard this report. Well, he saw some facts about the people and about the place. About the people, he heard that the exiles who had been living there now for a number of years were in great trouble and disgrace. Great trouble and disgrace. Do you know that that's always the result when we forsake the Lord? None of us can ever forsake the Lord in our lives without experiencing trouble and eventually disgrace. We need to learn that. And regarding the place itself, Nehemiah saw in his mind the fact that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and that its gates were still burned after all of these years. The survivors were weak and vulnerable because of that. Oh, the temple, a temple had been rebuilt, but the city was vulnerable to attack. They were really the victims of their enemies still. This once great people of God had been humbled, and now he learns that they were also defenseless, and something stirred inside of this man whose name means God comforts. He gained some information here. He saw the need. I want to ask you a question, what do you see? What do you see? That's an important question. Now the fact is that we all see what's closest to us and that's our own stuff, right? We naturally see that and there's nothing wrong with seeing our own issues and needs and problems, etc., etc. But God wants us to see beyond ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who looked to your interests and to mine. You and I are bombarded with information every day. We naturally set up certain filters in our lives to screen out things that we don't have time or interest in. What do you permit in the inbox of your life? What do you see? What filters have you created to keep some things out? Right now, all of us see the suffering of thousands of people who are affected by Hurricane Katrina. We are aware every day of the the suffering of the people in, in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, and the displaced people, and our hearts go out to them. We see that. We have that information. In fact, there's so much, it's almost an overload of it, we may feel. You may also see a friend who is hurting, perhaps someone that you work with, or a relative of yours who's going through a time of great crisis in his or her life, and you see that, you see it. You may also see the needs of lost people around you. We are all going to be reminded of this in a powerful way as we get into the next month. The, the festival theme for global outreach this year is To the Ends of the Earth, and it's based upon the Psalm Uh, Psalm 22 and the verses 27 and 28 that say, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. And we're going to be called upon once again to remember not only our own needs, but the needs of those who are lost in the nations of the world and who need yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? What do you see? This morning we were reminded in this wonderful slide presentation and the words about the opportunities right here in our own area, in our own region, to reach out to the lost. And we see what God is doing in the public schools. Don't tell anybody. Because the anti-Christian liberties union. may hear about it and try to stop it. Now, what's happening is perfectly legal, but you can expect that at some point there may well be a challenge to it because there are people who don't want this kind of thing happening in the public schools. So we want to be very careful about that, and yet we want to be involved. Do you see how you might be able to fit into that? Do you see the opportunity that's involved here? This is absolutely of God. There's no other way to explain God's people being able to minister to the children in all of these schools in our region for us to be involved as a local church. What do you see? Do you see the needs in our own ministry here? The needs that uh, are apparent in, in children's ministry, for example, or in your mid-sized group, a place, a role that you can have there. Do you see the opportunity for you to use your gifts? Do you see? We're thinking here of a physical uh, need that Nehemiah sees. And it leads me to ask the question, do you see the need that that we have as a church to improve our physical facility? We're we're doing that stage by stage, and I thank God for what's happening. But you know what that does? It, It creates a contrast, doesn't it? When you go up and you see the renovated rooms, and then you walk into the other classrooms, you see, wow, these classrooms need help. When you drive up to our church, what do you see? You see a large building and a beautiful campus, but you also see a building that, that desperately needs to be updated. God is doing a new work in this church, and we give God thanks for it. He is stirring us up. He is creating health in our congregation and and the life that is apparent here, and it is apparent, is so refreshing and wonderful. I worshiped elsewhere last Sunday in a congregation that that Jeanette and I love. We were part of it for a good number of years in our lives. But I got to tell you, it was so good to be here and worship this morning and to sense the Spirit of God uh, free. And, and doing work in our lives and drawing us to the feet of Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to see. The temple is being reconstructed, but the, the walls, <laughs> if I may draw a parallel, the gates are burned. And we have a, a building that needs to be updated. If we expect to have a ministry that is going to be vibrant and healthy and attractive to the people of our community, in five years or ten years, then we need to do some work here. And we have recently learned that uh, we do need to do some work that's not even visible. Uh, We have structural problems again in this worship center which will bring back memories or visions or dreams or nightmares for some of you from a few years ago. and and we're still trying to understand what that means and what it's going to entail of us, and we hope to have that information soon. But uh, do you see? If I were to bring you to to my house and you walked into my garage, you would say, I thought they left tornadoes in the Midwest. (laughs) But you know, I walk into my garage and I hardly see it anymore. Uh, You know how that is? You just don't see it anymore. And and that can be the case with us in coming here to church. Do you see our facility like the first newcomer sees it, first time newcomer sees it, where they put their children and what the building looks like and the doors and all of those things? What do you see? Nehemiah saw in his mind this information Now I don't know what else was going on in Nehemiah's life. I don't know if he had a wife, the Bible doesn't tell us. Did he have children? We don't know whether he did. Um, Did he have a a one-horse chariot or a two-horse chariot? I don't know. Was he short on hay? What what did bales of hay cost in that day so that he could keep his one-horse power chariot going? I don't know. I don't know what his concerns were. But the point is that Nehemiah looked beyond whatever was going on in his life to see the needs where God was pointing him over in Jerusalem. And he saw the people. And he saw the physical situation of the city. He saw. The second step in the process is this, that you feel the pain of what you see. Nehemiah felt pain in his heart because of the information that that God planted in his mind. What he saw went right down into his very soul, and he felt deeply the reality of the situation in Jerusalem. And it moved him, it moved him to tears and mourning. In verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and, and prayed before the God of heaven. If a vision is going to come together, folks, information must move us to compassion. And that requires that our hearts be sensitive. A danger that we face is the loss of sensitivity in our hearts due to multiple appeals. That can even happen in a great crisis like this Katrina disaster. We build up a callus to protect ourselves. And clearly, we have to determine that we can do this or we can't do that. We don't have the capacity to do everything. But in our hearts, do we feel the pain? God gives us the ability to to empathize. A question. Not only what do you see, but what do you feel? Of what do you see, what touches the emotional core of your life? Years ago, I heard somebody say that there are three questions you can ask a person, and based upon the answers, you will know their character. Question number one, what makes you laugh? Question number two, what makes you angry? Question number three, what makes you cry? If somebody honestly answers those questions, they will tell you about themselves. Nehemiah cried over Jerusalem. What are you crying over this weekend? You say, well, it's the hurt that I feel because of what I'm going through. God bless you. May he comfort you. May he come alongside of you and lift you up. But, oh, friend, you need to look beyond just your own things. Out there, what do you see? How do you feel about that in your heart? What is touching the emotional core of your life today? That's the second step of the process. Here's the final step. The final step is this, that you turn to God. You see, Nehemiah not only wept, he prayed before the God of heaven. He put the situation in its God context. The problem that he saw and which touched him so deeply was completely beyond what Nehemiah could handle alone. And so he turned to the one Who could resolve it? His God. Does your vision take into account the size of your God? Information that produces compassion brings us to connection with God. We turn our eyes above. Now, I'd like for us to track along with Nehemiah's prayer, but we're out of time to do that. But notice in verses 5 through 11, this wonderful prayer that wells up out of his heart. And it focuses upon what he says down in verse uh, 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. You say, what? who's that? What's he talking about? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. and We'll see what he means. But here's what I want you to notice. That through this season of mourning and fasting and then prayer, turning to God, a vision formed in Nehemiah's heart. He knew he could not handle, this was bigger than he alone could handle. He turned to God and and God not only showed him the need, caused him to feel as he felt about it, but, but in his heart a vision began to form as to how that might be addressed and it involved him. And it involved him stepping way out of his comfort zone. He had to get out there on the edge of things and risk everything. That's the way it is if God's going to use you. You say, well, I'm not a Nehemiah. No, neither am I. But you are who God made you to be. And right now there's something that God wants you to see. Or if you see it, God wants your heart to be broken by it. And if your heart is broken by it, then God wants to hear from you so that he can begin to plant into your heart and mold in you a vision that will involve a plan to address what you've seen. The result of this process is that God births a vision in your heart so that you can experience God in ways that you would not otherwise. What I want to exhort you to do today is to live on the edge with your vision and walk through this process with God in your own life and let God show you things that you could never dream of on your own. Let's pray together. With our heads bowed, are you walking with God today? Do you know Him? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Are you in fellowship with God, or are you like the people of Judah? You had forsaken the Lord, and you're living in disgrace and trouble. Friend, there's a loving and caring and patient and faithful God who's opening his arms to you today and he wants you to come to him. I hope you will. Come running to him. Jump into his arms. He's ready to receive you as a loving father. No oh, child of God, may God give you the vision that fits your life and fits who he is that will bless the world. And Father, to that end, I pray that you will give us the vision, the very first and most important vision, and that is of yourself. Be our vision. And as we focus on you, then create in us that that ministry vision, that outreach vision, that involvement vision, that ministry vision that you're calling us to.